0: from New York City. This is Film Spotting, streaming video units. I'm Allison Wilmore and I'm Matt Singer. On this episode of Film Spotting
1: SVU, we'll be talking about the British anthology series Inside Number 9. And then next week we'll return with a whole new cast and new material to present a new variation on the same theme.
0: Yeah, actually we will not. Sorry. Unlike in an anthology series, Film Spotting SVU is just us talking to you forever. And in this episode, as in all episodes, we'll be recommending some titles you can rent or stream at home right now, all with a common theme. And inspired by Inside Number 9, the subject of our main review, we thought we'd do a nine-themed episode. Nine songs, The Nines, Nine and a Half Weeks, Rob Marshall's Regrettable 2009 Musical 9. There, you know, actually, there are a lot of interesting nine movies, Matt. I'm kind of regretting only including this as a joke theme right now. I'm not, because I
1: have seen Nine, and it is <laughs> intensely regrettable, and I do not regret having to watch it again.
0: Oh, there's something about the, the, just how big it fails, though. Some of those
1: other ones are pretty good, or at least <laughs> interesting. Maybe this is a, theme, a joke theme that could become a real theme on this show someday. 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 Anyway, we did not do that. We're just going to be recommending some other anthology series on this episode, and we're not talking about your American Horrors stories... Your Americans' Crimes Stories. Your American Crime. No Story. No Story. That's a separate Just show? Just Crime, yeah. Okay. American Crime. Fargo. These are, now, these are shows, and of course, True Detective. These are the new, trendy, seasonal anthologies, where each season is a different story and a different cast. We're talking about episodic anthologies. Starting with this, our Listener's Choice Review. Oh. get in quick
0: I heard you talking, very slack Rebecca why are you hiding in here? I
1: didn't choose it,
0: did I? guilty as charged have
1: you met Ian?
0: no, I don't believe I've had the pleasure Carl, I'm Rebecca's brother Mm -hmm. so you must know all the nooks and crannies of the house then oh yes I spent most of my Christmases hiding in various cupboards waiting for my bossy little sister to find me (laughs) you never could though, could you? On every episode of FilmSpotting Streaming Video Unit, we let you pick the subject of our main review by voting on one of three options. And this time around, we gave you three different episodic anthology TV series. These are shows that tell a new story with a new cast or new-ish cast uh, each episode. Your options were the British series Inside Number 9, the first season of which is streaming on Hulu. Masters of Horror, which originally ran on Showtime, but which is now on TV, and Room 104, the Duplass Brothers-created series currently running on HBO. And while Room 104 was in the lead-up until Sunday, like the second to last day of the poll, Inside Number 9 co-creator Reese Shearsmith weighed in on Twitter at the last minute <laughs> and rallied his fans to bring the show to a late-breaking but decided win. Yes. It was a twist ending worthy of an episode of Inside (laughs) Number 9, in which each standalone episode is united by a location that is in some way the number 9. The series was created by Shearsmith and Steve Pemberton, who are also known as two of the creators of The League of Gentlemen. And while it has run for three seasons with a fourth on the way, we'll only be talking about the first six-episode season, since that's what's available in the U.S. on Hulu. Uh, that does mean we aren't going to get to the 12 Days of Christine, which is in the second season, and we often held up in lists about the show as the best. Sorry. Every episode in this first season was written by Shearer Smith and Pemberton and directed by David Kerr, but otherwise, uh, some are comedy, some are drama, some are closer to horror, and the locations vary from this kind of shabby apartment above some shops to a family's old mansion, They are functionally all bottle episodes, really. Uh, They're restricted to single locations, sometimes even single rooms within the location. And in actually the lead-off episode, mostly like a wardrobe within a single room in that location. So my question for you, Matt, is one about these limitations. Did you feel the show was able to use them to push for greater ingenuity? Uh, Ingenuity? Well, I mean... That's
1: an interesting question. I guess it depends on how you define ingenuity. And I I guess I would say to a certain extent, yes, because even though – you know they're limited to a single location in every case they're different locations and they're also very different as you said they're very different episodes it's not just like every single one is two people sitting in a room and talking which i think would be death that would just yes, be horrible and absolutely. that is and that is not what this is some are ta- more talky than others but there's an episode the second episode a quiet night in where there's almost no dialogue at all it's an almost entirely like a silent bumbling comedy until the Twist ending at the end. They all have the twists, um, which is something we could talk about uh, at some point. But, yeah, I mean, I thought it was pretty g- clever, actually. I have to say that um, when you say it's an anthology and it's all in one location, you do sort of worry, am I going to get bored by this and the repetition? And it it, it doesn't feel uh, repetitive really at all. I, I thought it was actually – now, I only had time to see five of the six episodes, the first five. I missed the last one. Um, just because we had to rec- record this early because of the Toronto Film Festival coming up, and uh, I had a great time watching them. I mean some are better than others i had a, I had a two I thought two of the five were really really good, and I thought the other three were solidly good but um, yeah i, I wasn 't bored i didn 't think that the show got repetitive at all. Could it have been more visually interesting? Sure, I think that some of them are sort of a little more as you said like sort of inventive or have a little more ingenuity than others. But I think it's a really good show, and if the second and third seasons come to Hulu or somewhere else, I would absolutely check those out as well.
0: Yeah, I do feel like there is something about the ways in which this has such clear restrictions, the idea that it these are taking place on locations that are pretty small, for the most part. Like, even the biggest ones are still just, like, a building. Right. I think there's something about that that seems to push the writers to do... Very different things each episode. Mm-hmm. I mean, including in the second episode, which you mentioned, which I think is like clearly the best one for me. Oh, uh, at least a quiet night in, which is the one that is all physical comedy.
1: It's good, um, but that was not one of my two favorites. Interesting. Yes,
0: that was definitely my favorite. Uh, oh. It 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 feels almost like Tati. You know, it has this kind of like definitely even the even the fact that it's in the modernist house, the modernist house, and and then it's these two burglars sneaking around while. This couple is basically having a breakup, right? Um, and it's just uh, all very clever. I think that clever is a lot of these feel very clever. Yes, uh, that they maybe don't all feel like they have great emotional depth, but uh, certainly at least in this first season, they all of them ma- manage to. I don't know. Do do something at least? I I think each one has some idea that I admired. Sure. That we well, tried to do.
1: Emotional depth is hard in an anthology series. I mean, that's one of the weaknesses, I think, of an anthology is that
0: yeah, I mean, yes and no. I think that like when you look at something like and, and we'll talk about anthology series more later, but something like Black Mirror, you know, sure. I have cried over Black Mirror okay. episodes. I, I think that yes, I do, well, I do think that there's something about this format that does Um, encourage cleverness. Yes, it encourages cleverness
1: and sort of, they can be very writerly, they encourage sort of like eloquent or witty or clever dialogue Um, but yeah, I don't really necessarily, I mean, the, the, they're at least at a disadvantage to a, to a episodic sort of a a serialized series because you're only, you're meeting these characters for the first time when the show begins and that's it. They only get, in this case, 25 minutes, not even hour long episodes to really sort of sink into the emotions and learn the characters. You have to be economical with that sort of thing. So I, 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 I agree that they're not particularly emotional for the most part, um, and they're sort of more formal and and clever, I think is a pretty good word. But I, I feel like within the constraints of the show, I think they do a pretty nice job. and and uh, they do have twists. It's it, I did sort of as we watched a lot more anthology series I did think it was odd that it almost seems like a rule now yeah. that sh- that anthology series
0: have to have twists I think that it's a throwback you know I think we we both watched some older anthology episodes and some newer ones sure. and I think that there is something about the form that, like, Twilight Zone style, Obviously, you know, the seems Twilight to demand Zone. this, like, punchline kind of at the, at the end yes. to be like, this wasn't what you thought.
1: But I, And I think it does speak to the enormous influence that that show has had. Is that, like, when you say anthology series, the first show everyone thinks about is the Twilight Zone. And it is almost as if now people cannot conceive of anthology series without twist endings. Now, having said that, some of the twists on this show are great. I loved some of the twists, not, not all of them, but I. But it is a little odd how so many of the shows now. It's like, I don't know. It almost would be more of a twist not to have a twist at this point well, with some of these yeah, shows. It
0: almost it. It's like it requires punctuation somehow. Yeah, yeah. Well, I want to hear which ones are the ones that you thought worked the best. My absolute
1: favorite one. Was the one was last gasp, which is about the Mm. celebrity who dies. Like he's a pop star, huge pop star, and he dies. At he's making like a make a wish, and um, he's helping the little girl who's dying blow up a balloon. And blowing up the balloon kills him. (laughs) And this is just the the brilliant part where I just uh, talk about clever. This is so clever. Very clever. And I mean, it is a is a huge compliment. Is that he has died breathing into this balloon, which the girl now has. And the the balloon now contains the last breath of air, the dying breath of this huge pop star, like like, like a Timberlake, I guess it would be. We don't spend a lot of time with this guy, but that's how I envisioned it. And the parents of the kid and the sort of make-a-wish minder, and I guess what would be the assistant of the pop star, all are fighting over the balloon. What to do with it, how to sell it, how do they split up the proceeds, because this is clearly worth thousands of dollars, and – Everything about that I thought was great. There is a twist ending. There's actually almost like two twists to this one. One I think was sort of I, – I thought was a little bit obvious, um, but both great. And I just thought, you know, it wasn't too cute. It was just clever and just so smart, and, and, and it's about stuff too. It's about celebrity culture. It is about the sort of exploitation of these make-a-wish children, which you do see sometimes um, by people who want to use them to make themselves look better perhaps in fulfilling these wishes and just the sort of shallowness of these characters, which is sort of a theme throughout a lot of the episodes is just kind of the awfulness of people.
0: Yeah.
1: Um, that was my favorite, and I also liked Tom and Jerry, which is the one. Hmm. Uh, did you not? Was that not no, one of your I, favorites? I,
0: did, I I I liked it. I wasn't one of my favorites. Yeah, I will say that. Those were the those were the two. Those yeah, the Tom two. and Jerry is the one. I actually like that we really we like different favorites, yes, very different ones. Uh, the, Tom and Jerry is
1: about this one. That's primarily about this guy who is a unhappy school teacher, and he wants to be an author, and uh, he sort of like fancies himself, or at least admires. Uh, Bukowski, and so one day this uh, homeless man who has found his wallet kind of returns it to him and that sort of uh, begins this process where the guy the the homeless man just basically won't leave and then begins to influence his life. It, that one is is very twilight zone to very me. Twilight Even though it doesn't have yeah. a sort of a, sci- a sci-fi premise at all, just the sort of the there's almost something heightened and melodramatic about the premise where essentially they almost begin to switch roles. The homeless man's life improves. Right. He
0: like sucks the, He's the like respectable specubus, life yes.
1: out of this. Yeah, guy. he leeches his sort of respectable life out while sort of like extruding his homelessness onto uh Tom, the 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 sort of upstanding guy who becomes a drunk and he loses his job and all that. And I just thought the like the formalness of that, the writing of it, the structure of it, it was it was sort of like a serling esque premise and execution, but very well done in a way that I have I, I felt like, you know, like it could have been on a modern and there have been modern Twilight Zone reboots. Like that one to me you could have done as a Twilight Zone episode. It would have felt like this is a very solid episode of that.
0: Yeah. I liked the understudy, uh which was the the actor one that takes place all in a dressing room. Yes. And kind of it is another one that I'm like, oh, this is very clever in that it is about Macbeth, like actors that perform Macbeth, right. including an understudy for the role. And then it kind of echoes all these echoes of Macbeth. Macbeth as it goes along I in terms l- of scheming. Like, i I mean, it is very much it felt like an exercise, but I thought it was like a very well done exercise, yeah, you know, in th- that way. That one grew on me. I didn't love it at the
1: beginning, but as it went on and it right, as you said it sort of it reveals the Macbethness of this the the for, like the the the, the main storyline. And again, that was another one where the twist I did not see coming and and I liked that as well. So, yeah, not one of my favorites, but another like Very solid one.
0: Yeah, and I'll quickly mention the other two. Sardines, which is the first one, uh, is one that takes place entirely in a wardrobe uh, inside a house in which the people are playing this parlor game, sardines, you know, yes. which is like hide and seek, except when you find the person, you hide with them Correct. until everyone is smooshed into this small area. And I actually, I mean, I liked this one as well. I think it's it's got, the writing is very good. It's just about how all of these people hate each other. <laughs> right. I thought that was the,
1: maybe it was just because I was, I had no idea what to expect. I didn't really know there would be even twist ending, yeah. anything really happened. That I thought was the weakest one, mm. and uh, you know the ending again of that one is good, and it grabs you, and you say, "Oh, this is not quite what I thought it was," but uh, that would have been my least. It's still good, but that was my least favorite of the of the yeah. five that I watched.
0: I just enjoy the polite bickering, the like contempt that is underneath. Yeah, all and of there's the... one guy who's
1: like smelly, which this, is yes, just very yes. again clever <laughs> to have like this game where you have to cram yourselves all into this like giant wardrobe. Yeah, and there's like
0: exes and they their new lovers, and there's yes. a lot of like. Uh, There's a lot of repressed rage and uh, dislike. Yes. Uh, The last one, which you didn't see, which probably would be my pick for the weakest one, is this kind of comedy horror one about a a babysitter of sorts who was hired to this like ridiculously creepy mansion to take care of uh, this invalid who's upstairs, but she's told not to go upstairs unless he rings a bell. Mm. Um, And it's all just like, it plays into uh, kind of horror comedy tropes until it uh, takes a twist ending. Um, I I don't think it works as well, though it's, it's kind of like enjoyable as a send up of like Gothic horror idea, uh, iconography for a little bit. Uh, we didn't mention the actors, but this has a lot of, uh, in, in addition to Pember- Pemberton and Sheer Smith, uh, who appear in most of the episodes, Kevin uh, Parkinson, who is from the IT crowd. Gemma um, Archerton Gemma, is Gemma in Tom Archerton. and Jerry. Right. Uh, you've got uh, Helen McCrory in the last one. Uh, you 've got i don 't know just like Tamsin Gregg uh, in the last gasp you 've got like a lot of very familiar faces popping up in here, which I think is like one of the great benefits of the anthology series Absolutely. is that you know if having a, a season long anthology, one of the great sell points of that has been getting big talent in who wouldn 't want to sign up for a show that could run forever sure having a coming in for one episode is a very low commitment, so That's right. you can have a lot of actors come in and out, and I think. I don't know. There's something really nice about seeing so many faces go through this. I watched most of these with my wife and and
1: she was sort of as we were nearing the end, she was like, have you seen do you see any other connections between them? Besides the obviously, they all take place in a in a in a number nine of some kind, and and sometimes the number nine actually pops up too in dialogue. It'll it'll sort of appear here and there. Did you see anything else that connected them? I thought it was an interesting question because I hadn't really thought about it. I wasn't really looking for connections. I thought the sort of general sort of worldview and the presentation of people throughout these uh, throughout these. Uh, episodes, again, that they, they felt sort of of a piece. I mean, they're all yeah. written by the same people, so I guess that makes sense. But they seem to, even though they're all in different worlds, or with different casts at least, they do have a very sort of cohesive kind of worldview, I thought.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's a lot of people who are kind of grasping and greedy and like who kind desperate. of desperate yeah reveal a selfishness as soon as there's an opportunity to better yourself right, right? and
1: that to me is a very rod serling-esque thing too like a that, dark view of
0: human nature yeah
1: very cynical view of human nature and that all and, and also just like and just a very not everything being black and white where a lot of these episodes someone seems like they're the guilty party and it's by the nature of twist it's like in order to make that work you have to have people who seem innocent who turn out to be guilty and people who are guilty who turn out to be innocent and vice versa. And the interesting thing about that is that while it does sort of enable you, it's almost like necessary to do twist storytelling, it does give you this overall sort of appearance of where no one is innocent and no one is entirely guilty. And it does kind of suggest a world where kind of everyone is a screw-up and there's just degrees, which is, I think, uh, it's easy to buy into that worldview. Sure.
0: And I think it's also got a very kind of... It's got a lot of scorn for the societal surface level politeness, you know. Yes, I would. That say yes, really, that's a good point too. It, it does not have a lot of faith in how genuine that is for anyone. Right. Everyone and is waiting to kind of bust out.
1: And also surfaces in general. I mean, there's a lot of these characters where they seem to be one thing, and what they seem to be is never uh, quite what they are. I mean, the one that I liked so much, the Tom and uh, Jerry one. I mean, that really. Is, I mean, that's about surfaces and how like these surfaces can kind of mask people's true natures uh but yeah that's i'm looking at the list of episodes that's kind of what every single one is about in some ways too yeah it's a good point
0: yeah i don't know maybe that's just something that as you said is like it it lends itself well to the the form yeah i'm not sure what's coming first
1: whether it's the worldview and it's sort of aiding in the twist or it's that if you're going to tell you're going to write stories with twists, you have to surprise people right. with motivations that you don't see coming.
0: Well, we can talk about this in the next segment, but also I think that there is like an almost a uh, a drive to alongside the twist is a drive to almost put like a moral on some of these stories. Oh, and yeah. I don't think that this that's necessarily true for Inside Number 9, but I do think it kind of comes with that. Like that there's like almost a lesson to be taught to someone.
1: Yes. It's kind of almost, uh, uh, almost a punishment in a lot of these cases, Yes, yeah, which again harkens right. back to uh, the Twilight Zone as well.
0: Well, that is inside number nine. We're both big fans and hoping that more seasons come to the U.S. for streaming soon. But in the meantime, you can find this first season on Hulu.
1: All right, let's move on to Q Shots, our subject again anthology series, uh, episodic anthologies, not season long anthologies. Um, We had a few, we sort of touched on a few general ideas in our review of Inside Number Nine, but. Allison, you had you had a couple other things you wanted to say. I think I have a few things as well. What do, you, what do you want to talk about first generally about anthologies before we get into some recommendations?
0: Well, I did want to say that as much as the season-long anthology is very cool right now. It's in vogue. It is. The episodic anthology has been having a bit of a resurgence too. Room 104 on HBO, which was one of our listeners' choice options. Yep. Uh, Joe Swanberg's Easy on Netflix. Right. Uh, documentary Now on IFC is basically right. that. That's a good one, Black yes. Black Mirror on Netflix, or High Maintenance, which I've talked about before, which started as a web series and then went on to HBO, and is really one of my favorite ongoing TV shows. Uh, It has little threads of serialization, but it mostly works as standalone episodes, Um, and I feel like, uh, you know, as much as we talk about in this era in which movies and TV get very fuzzy, uh, and that, you know... TV series get described as better or worse, uh, for better or worse, as a 13-hour movie. Yes. Um, Something that has started to fill us all with dread. There is something to be said for this as a place, uh, for episodic anthology series as a place where short films intersect with TV. You know, especially uh, in these ones that pull in uh, a lot of independent filmmakers. Um, But I also thought about, when we talked about this, uh, the short-lived 1993 David Lynch HBO series Hotel Room, which oh. isn't available legally, but follows a similar format as Room 104, different stories in one hotel room, which kind of echoes uh, the Inside Number Nine format. Yep. Uh, inside different locations, um, but I also wanted to say this is a format that is all is tied to the first golden age of television. If you think that yes, TV unfolds is. in ages, both the Twilight Zone, but also like. Colgate Theater, General Electric Theater, Pepsi Cola Playhouse, Philip Morris Playhouse. Right, it's great for sponsorship, is what I'm saying. Yeah.
1: <laughs> right, well, and a lot of those shows, including The Twilight Zone, including Inside Number Nine. I mean, the interesting thing about them is that they are um, they are shows where the writers are very often the stars because the stars are come and go. You know, the actors are only around for one episode. So the thing that's bringing you back is is the writer, is your sort of love of the writing on the show, maybe the structure of the show, the format, the twist, the fact that you sort of, you know, you know those things and you expect those, and that's what you're tuning in to watch. You did mention in our review that like the one of the nice things about them is that because it's such a small commitment of time, you can get great actors. So you know that's always a. a, a something I like in an anthology series. You don't, you know, if you're watching them sort of at random, you don't know who's going to be in it. You don't know uh, what they're going to be doing. That's fun. And I think as a result of that, it they, you know, there's, they force you to be an attentive viewer, which is kind of interesting. You mentioned that they were a big part of the early days of, of television, the, the first golden age of television. Um, you know, they were as close to serious, art as television got All in of these
0: before playhouses yeah, yeah before
1: peak tv this was like the original peak tv was 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 this were these you know they would get bring broadway writers in to write these great uh, plays every week there would be a new play from these in, in, acclaimed writers um but again you didn't know you know if you watch uh, seinfeld and i you know i'm not saying this to insult seinfeld every episode of seinfeld you you kind of know what it's going to be. You're going to have the characters you know, and they're going to be doing the things you know. It's like you can't do that. Uh, you can't just dis- you can't distracted view an anthology series. And it's interesting to me that that's you know it, again it forces you to pay attention, which is something that for many years television was designed to be watched without
0: paying attention. Right, like the sitcom is based on restoring the same situation at the end of every episode. Right, and that you can watch it while it's playing in the background, that you could follow it just
1: by listening. You know, and like in the case of Inside Number Nine, like, you know, there's that one episode that has no dialogue at all. You have to be paying attention. And so I think that uh, that's something that's very interesting and, uh, and special about it. I mean, you did say that, Anthology series, not just season long, but the episodic ones as well, are having a bit of a resurgence right now, and I don't know if that's just because there's just so much content right now, and you need to do something different. But it is interesting how, uh, I mean, the the main, sh- the most popular shows right now, the biggest shows, the ones that get, it's that it's everything is about long form. You said I was going to say the exact same thing. How now television is, is almost expected to be a thirteen-hour movie, like. That this, you know, it harkens back to a much different era, you know, where the nice thing about these shows when they were airing in the 50s was you didn't have to, if you missed one episode, all right, you don't miss anything if you come back the next week. It's an all new cast, it's an all new story. So there's something lovely about that as well. The, the commitment while you have to pay attention for the 30 minutes or the hour you're watching, the commitment is a little less intense, which is kind of nice.
0: Yeah, you can sample it, um, which is the case of my first choice. Uh, I started off with one of those older titles and a, one of the kind of like definitive, I would say, ones in this, in this genre. It's streaming on Hulu right now. Alfred Hitchcock Presents. Mm-hmm. Uh, the first four seasons of this series are on Hulu, but not all of them are complete. Notably, uh, none of the episodes that were written by Roald Dahl, which are some of the most acclaimed ones, are huh. on there. He wrote uh, Like a Lamb to Slaughter with Barbara Bel Geddes, which yes, is like a I've very seen, famous one. Yes, the most famous uh, one. Or Man from the South, which Tarantino later tipped his hat to in his segment of Four Rooms, speaking of um, anthology movies in that case. Uh, taking place in different rooms. Uh, that was the whole flicking the lighter, lighting the lighter multiple times in a row or a bet versus chopping off a finger. Uh, there are still plenty of good ones, great ones really, to be found in the current streaming selection. And what's striking, I'd say, watching these is the quality of their visuals. You know, there's something about this format that that I think emphasizes the writing, as you've said. Uh, but I think in, in a lot of Alfred Hitchcock Presents, uh, they are really kind of like cleverly done visually. Uh, it definitely does not hurt that multiple episodes were directed by Hitchcock, who also provides introductions and epilogues for each one, setting up sponsored advertising in a way that warms my podcasting heart. Uh, There's one part where he says, crime does not pay. For that, you must have a sponsor. (laughs) (laughs) Good impression. Thank you. Very nice. Uh, You know, it's got the famous uh, opening theme song where it's got the kind of um, silhouette silhouette of him that he Mm -hmm. walks into. And, uh, you know, in a lot of these intros and closes, Hitchcock talks about the stories that you're about to see as if they were plays, uh, but they don't feel like plays at all. Uh, Something like One More Mile to Go, which is one of the ones that Hitchcock directed, and which stars David Wayne as a man who murders his wife, and then has this very tense, suspenseful ride uh, in which he is trying to discard the body it starts off with a sequence that's entirely wordless. It's shot as if the camera were peeking in at the couple from outside the window as they have a tiff that escalates into deadly violence. Uh, And there's something that's very kind of experimental about that. Almost like this story starts off with no dialogue for a long stretch Um, Some of them have obvious morals, like Never Again, which stars Phyllis Thaxter as a recovering alcoholic who's prone to jealousy. And she wakes up with this horrible hangover and has to piece together what turned out to be a very, very bad night in flashback. Uh, But that one is also very psychologically complicated. It's not just like a teach you a lesson very special episode um and that's also the case for the glass eye uh which in which jessica tandy is a spinster who falls in love with a ventriloquist and she corresponds with him and eventually attempts to meet with him and the twist is a startling one definitely but it's also just so terribly sad for both the characters it doesn't feel like a lesson in any way uh, so there is this kind of uh, tension between the actual stories and then Hitchcock's insistence in putting them into context that these are tales with morals, which he says as much out loud. He often follows up the ends of each story with, and then so-and-so went to prison and paid for his or her crimes. Um, something that feels almost like very code-like, you know, to be like, you may not see it on screen, but definitely this guy's going down for the crime. Uh, and yet, something like Revenge, even, the very first episode, uh, which Hitchcock directed, feels more just like this this effective, efficient fable, this punch in the gut. Um, that one stars Vera Miles as a, a former dancer who's recovering from a psychological breakdown. And Ralph Meeker is her husband. Uh, and he leaves her behind in their new home in this trailer in California, uh, to go to work, and he comes back to find something very bad has happened, and that is a, a story that feels less neat and it feels more troubling the more you think about it. It actually i think defies it defies a moral, even though that's the the kind of context in which it's presented so there I don't know there's a lot of really kind of interesting things in here and a lot of great talent like John Cassavetes is in one of the the war- more well-known ones people from Hitchcock's movies it's very primed for sampling uh mm. and so I would say give this a try especially right now while we're still if you're looking for things to stream and we're still in the quiet days of TV uh this is definitely one worth uh picking up on Hulu and delving into Uh, It's got some really great talent, and a lot of people from the world of film uh, went to make these TV episodes. So that is Alfred Hitchcock Presents, and it is on Hulu.
1: One of the things that's funny about that show is, you know, nowadays, The Twilight Zone is sort of, you know, like the most famous anthology series of all time. It's so beloved. They still, you know, they have marathons still to this day on on cable, and it had a huge impact on, on the world and everything. And That show was only on for about 150 episodes, which is a that's a very substantial run. There were 360 episodes of Alfred Hitchcock Presents. It was on for like 10 seasons. They were on for like a half hour for like seven years, and then they bumped it up to hour long episodes. And you know, it really cemented. Obviously, he was already a very, very famous director. That's why he got his own television show that he was the presenter of. But it really like cemented him. As a as a you know celebrity beyond just being a a uh, director, but I just think it's funny how you know these days. I, I mean, you can still watch the show online, but it's just funny how the show has not. You know, it, it's not the Twilight. The Twilight Zone is like an enduring ph- like pop culture phenomenon. Uh, not the same for Alfred Hitchcock pronounced, but probably at the time Hitchcock Hitchcock Presents was probably even bigger than the, the Twilight Zone, and it certainly had more staying power. Anyway. Uh, my first pick. Uh, we've already talked about the fact that the anthology series is is a writer's medium. Writers are the stars. The, you know the actors change. The directors tend to change pretty frequently, and the writer is the constant. And another very good example of that is my first pick, the Ray Bradbury Theater, which is currently available on Amazon Prime. This show ran for six seasons in the 1980s, two on HBO, and then after HBO dropped it, they had four more seasons on USA Network in the early days of USA. And the quote-unquote star of the show here is the author Ray Bradbury, best known for the novel Fahrenheit 451, and of course he has famous short story collections like I Sing the Body Electric. And so the Ray Bradbury Theater is kind of like, you know, if I guess if you're watching like a season, if you're like binge watching this show on Amazon Prime, it's kind of like uh, reading a, a collection of short stories. All of the episodes, all 65 of them are written by Ray Bradbury. And a lot of them are based on his previous short stories, including ones like A Sound of Thunder, which is a very famous time travel short story that he wrote which was later made into a movie in 2005. A
0: terrible movie.
1: I've never seen its it. I've heard it's, it's, it's amazing. Good. It's not good. Okay. Um, each episode, you know, like, I think they're, in a way, they're kind of winking at the Hitchcock Presents opening because the opening of, of it is, like, Ray Bradbury walking into his office. You first see him, like, through, like, a, a kind of um, uh, an opaque pane of glass, so it's sort of his silhouette at first, and then he walks inside, and he sits down at his desk, and he goes to the typewriter, and he starts typing, and I guess the idea is, like, the episode you're about to watch is what he's writing there. Some of the ones I watched, um, he narrates all the intros, but some of them just have kind of a very generic, identical intro every time, and then other ones he actually talks about. Sometimes he's talking about, like, if I don't know if this is his office or a set, or if it's based on his actual office, if it is a set. But he, he's like he, – he writes in this very cluttered office filled with junk and bric-a-brac. And so it's yeah, – he talks about how like the things in my office inspire me to write kind of thing. And so – um, in like, so for the episode with a sound of thunder, the intro is like a dinosaur and another dinosaur. And he's talking about these dinosaurs were given to me. He's a, he doesn't quite have the Rod Serling sinister delivery quite down. He's like Rod Serling's more jovial uncle kind of thing. He's, he's older when they were shooting this and he has a very friendly demeanor, which sometimes doesn't quite match the <laughs> sinister, uh, or sort of fantastical stories that you're going to watch. Um, This is actually the show that inspired us to do this whole episode because I found it. I guess they just added some of it to Amazon Prime, and I had never heard of this show. And I was like, the Ray Bradbury Theater. That sounds kind of interesting. And you look at the cast lists of some of these shows, some of the actors that came through, and I'll just list a couple that are in various episodes. William Shatner, Eugene Levy, Jeff Goldblum, Leslie Nielsen, Louise Fletcher, Drew Barrymore, a young Drew Barrymore, and many, many more. I sampled a few of the episodes. Um... I really enjoyed them. I did watch A Sound of Thunder, which now, A Sound of Thunder, the movie, that was like a big budget movie, right? Yes. I mean, it's dinosaurs.
0: It's, it's, it's not a premise that really lends itself to a lower a budget. A low
1: budget, 30 minute television yes. show. So you can imagine what the dinosaurs look like. I
0: honestly can't.
1: <laughs> you can. And they look hilarious.
0: Oh. Uh, I mean, even
1: though, I mean, the, it's a famous short story, A Sound of Thunder, but it's sort of a ludicrous premise where it's like it's time travel and it's like hunters traveling back to the dinosaur period to kill dinosaurs. They pay, it's like, you know, what's the most dangerous game for a hunter? It's not even man, it's a dinosaur. So this is in the future where time travel is a reality and they travel back in time, but they have to follow very specific rules because of the butterfly effect, of course, which is, it it doesn't make any sense because
0: no, it just seems like a very poor use of very uh, powerful Dangerous technology. Dangerous and powerful yes.
1: technology. It's like we've created time travel so we can basically create or a, a narrowly escape time paradoxes every single time we we travel through time. But I don't know. I just love the sort of – there's something very to me very nostalgic about watching this show. Even though I, if I ever watched it as a kid, I don't remember it. But it has like that shot-on-video look of a lot of – this sort of cheapo USA network uh, and other basic cable network programming of this era. You know, it's all in 4 by 3 The The titles literally very clearly were done like on beta to beta, like just typing on a keyboard and then it showed up on a chroma key kind of thing. It doesn't look great, but in some ways that I found that to be very charming. The episodes that are on Amazon Prime are not restored. Um, they're very grainy. They may be dubs from VHS or old beta tapes. Um, but again, I found that um, entirely like very charming about uh about them as well. Um I watched another one that I really liked that was called it's the first episode of the second season called The Fruit at the Bottom of the Bowl. And it's about a man who kills uh <laughs> kills someone. The man played by Michael Ironside. Mm. Uh, yes, uh which was exciting to see and he kills this guy and basically before the right before the show begins and so the entire episode is flashing back finding out why he killed him, and also as he becomes increasingly consumed with covering it up and becoming obsessed with his fingerprints. He has to clean the fingerprints off of everything and going slowly mad. And it's just a great, like, a bottle episode kind of thing. Um, it's a nice showcase for Michael Ironside. It was just great. I just loved seeing a very young, not entirely bald Michael Ironside acting his guts out of the show. Um, and yeah, like I just was kind of sampling around and having a great time watching them. And I would encourage you to, you know, like another thing, it's like, like Alison was saying, this is a great thing to just kind of just dip in and try a couple of them and definitely watch the Sound of Thunder episode and watch the production design. Look at how cheap it is. It's amazing. And, uh, yeah, sample it before the, uh, the big fall TV shows come back. This is the Ray Bradbury theater and all six seasons, at least it appeared to me, were available on Amazon prime.
0: Well, so my second pick is also tied to an author. Uh, it is tied to Neil Gaiman. Uh, uh, you know, part of this resurgence in this form is that even like uh, smaller outlets are trying it, and in this case, it would be Sky Arts and Shutter here in the U.S. Shutter is the exclusive home of Neil Gaiman's Likely Stories. Um, this is a set of four 22-minute adaptations of four different Neil Gaiman short stories. They're all directed by Ian Forsyth and Jane Pollard, who did the Nick Cave documentary 20,000 Days on Earth, among other things. Um, they are, inevitably, as the format goes, a kind of uh, uneven bunch. Some work much better than others. But what I found interesting about this kind of little endeavor is that they take on a a challenge that is almost like perverse in terms of filming something, which is that they are mostly stories about people telling stories. Uh They are frames within frames, uh, which is not often the thing that you think of as the easiest to tackle when you're doing something visual. But in this case, I would say they mostly work. Um, it's, it's got a set of actors, some of whom recur playing different characters in different ones, but some of whom do not. Uh, Montserrat Lombard, uh, Monica Dolan, Paul Ritter. The most effective of the four, I would say, is the one called Feeders and Eaters in which a pregnant woman who's working the night shift at a cafe comes across an old friend who proceeds to tell her a very disturbing story about his relationship with his landlady. So you have the setup of this woman and like a kind of these glimpses of her life, like in, in this, this little snapshot of her arriving at this cafe and then this guy coming in and then flashbacks kind of built into returning to the cafe at night Uh, And that's true also of Looking for the Girl, in which a famous photographer shares an off-the-record story uh, with a journalist interviewing him about how he got into the business. And it involves this woman he decides is his muse, who he swears appears again and again and again in these kind of softcore shoots, uh, and is always forever 19, even as the time goes on. There's also Closing Time, uh, which is a spooky story told to strangers at a pub late at night. And Foreign Parts, which deals with a sexually transmitted disease that doesn't seem to have required any sex to be caught. It's probably the least successful of the bunch. Mm-hmm. Um, they, these stories do have uh, a tendency to fold in in the background or in a TV or in the radio playing interviews with Neil Gaiman, which I find extremely annoying. <laughs> um, but I know these stories very well. I've read all of Neil Gaiman's short stories. Uh, and there is actually something very satisfying about seeing them rendered uh, this way, in part because they are so not uh, your standard. Uh, twist at the end, you know, kind of, a lot of them actually end almost with a, like, what do you think about that? You know, like a question mark. They feel in part because of this framing a little off-center, like you're getting something that has, is a second-hand story that's been passed down so that some of the details were lost, but other ones have kind of come into focus. And uh, I, I think there is something about that approach, particularly given everything we've talked about with the episodic anthology series and its tendencies towards the punchline, the moral, yeah. the twist. Mm-hmm. There's something about the ways that these ones kind of like – uh, kind of like diffuse away at the end that I actually really enjoyed. Uh, so if you have Shutter, those are worth a look. They go down very easy at 22 minutes each. Neil Gaiman's Likely Stories.
1: All right, that's cool. I hadn't even heard about that show, so I'm going to have to check that one out. My second pick, Allison can help me out on this one because I know she's seen, I think, all of it. She's probably seen more of it than I have at this point. Um, it did not win our Listener's Choice Poll. Because no one uh, affiliated with Room 104 <laughs> tweeted about our poll and told people to vote in you it. We should have really brought them in. It could have been a poll Yeah, we should have, uh, uh, we should have gotten the, the pluses to get involved. We did not. Um, but I decided to try the, the show out anyway. And uh, I, I like the stuff that I saw. It's Room 104. It's available now on HBO Go and HBO Now. The show is still ongoing week to week on HBO. I think the season is about half over right now. The premise is a little similar to Inside Number Nine, as it's an anthology that's based on a location. The difference is Inside Number Nine, every episode is in a different place that just happens to be numbered nine. And this is all set in the same hotel room. Uh now you saw more than I did. They do they say where this hotel room is? No. Okay. Because the ones that I saw they didn't, but I was just curious if perhaps in one of them they do. So we don't even know where this hotel is. We just we don't really see outside the hotel. We just it's just the room. The hotel room, you know, it looks sort of like a, a kind of humble motel, I would say. Not even really a hotel. Yeah, it looks
0: like a, a roadside. Like, like a roadside, the, like the
1: Bates, off the highway. Yeah. Like a modern-day Bates Motel kind right. of place. Maybe
0: slightly less murder, but don't want to rule murder out.
1: Yeah, I mean, it's an <laughs> anthology series. There's going to be some murder occasionally, for sure. Um, the stars here, again, we just mentioned them, uh, are the creators and writers the Duplass brothers, longtime indie film star- stalwarts. Uh, by the time this first season of 12 episodes is over, Mark Duplass will have written seven of the 12 episodes of the show himself. Uh, Jay Duplass' stars in one of the episodes. And the interesting thing here, I thought, was, you know, we've talked about how anthology series, you can bring in an actor for one episode, a really good actor. So you have, you know, uh, a great cast. They just change from episode to episode. Room 104, the kind of cool thing is they've kind of taken that approach to the director's you know like the a lot of these you know they kind of bring in like indie film directors who might be busy with their own stuff they don't have time to make a whole season of a television show but they can come in for one episode so one of the episodes that hasn't aired yet is by Anna Boden and Ryan Fleck they're going to be directing uh, Captain Marvel after that you know and they've done a bunch of indie film I- indie movies that we've liked uh, Patrick Bryce, who's worked with Mark Duplass before, did an episode. Megan Griffiths did a couple. So Young Kim did an episode. Chad Hardigan did an episode. So You've got a lot of talented people here beyond the Duplass brothers. And they're sort of limited by the hotel room and the setting, but there's a lot of leeway they have to work with. Um, did you have a favorite episode that you watched, Allison? I
0: did. It's not one that you'd gotten to, okay. actually. But I do feel like there's a pattern with this in my favorite episode of Inside Number 9. Huh. It's my favorite episode... Number six, Voyeurs, is also wordless. It is dialogue-free. Ah. It is actually entirely told through dance. Wow. Yes. It's, it's uh, directed by Dana Hansen, who has also done, I think, uh, is a dancer and a choreographer and has also done a film that has been told through dance that I had not seen. Uh, her film is called Improvement Club, I guess. It's a 2013 film, which I had not seen. And she has an upcoming one called 13 Chambers, uh, which I know nothing about. But I definitely was really just into the novelty of having this story told, uh, Basically, this uh, woman comes in to clean the room, and the items that are left behind remind her of her younger self, who then crawls out of bed. And they have this like, dance routine together that is basically reminiscing on uh, where, where they were and where they are now. Uh-huh. Uh, it was really lovely. The one that you had mentioned to me, I don't know
1: if you did it on the show or just off air before when we were uh, doing our previous episode, was the internet. Episode five. So I watched that one first and I really liked that one. Did you watch that one I as well? I did watch that
0: one. Uh, I, yeah, I, I thought that it was nice. That was the one that was set in the 90s. Yes, it's in
1: 1997. This guy is uh, basically, he has a very important meeting with like a literary agent, but he left his laptop at home. And so he has to call his mother, his te- techno stupid mother to email him uh, a copy of his novel. And talk her through it. And uh, I have to be careful what I say here because my mother listens to my podcast. <laughs> my mother uh, is not the most technically savvy person on the planet. And so this, uh, this episode, I think, resonated with me in a very profound way. Um, and then you know, this, this episode does have a twist. But I didn't I, love the twist. You didn't love the twist? No. I, thought it, I thought it led to some nice acting.
0: Yes, there's some I very like nice. Karen, Soni, Karen Sony plays the yeah. the
1: guy, and he I thought gave a very good performance, mostly on the telephone, and then he has to do some heavy lifting at the end that yeah. I thought was good.
0: It's like basically it's it's a solo performance. It's basically like he's a solo by performance. By himself in the room, uh, and he I think he does a yeah he does a really nice job. And I also
1: liked uh, episode two Pizza Boy, which is uh, this pizza Pizza Boy played by uh, Clark Duke gets dragged into this couple played by James Vanderbeek and Davy Blues kind of their sexual exploits that
0: one was not my favorite but it is funny that it reminded me of uh four rooms again uh-huh. i don't have you ever seen four rooms no not in its entirety I, I mean, like certainly there is no good reason to go back and revisit this 1995 anthology film uh other than the novelty value of its set of directors which right. include robert rodriguez and quentin tarantino Alison and anders uh but there is my least favorite four rooms episode it is similar evokes, to that yes i mean that. i
1: liked that one was another one where i actually did like the twist and um and i i i enjoyed the episode you know again they're they're very they're they're bite sized you know you can watch it while you're having a snack it's 20 25 minutes or whatever it is they don't they don't uh overstay their welcome i think overall the show is so, I mean, from what I watched, it's solid. I, this one, I would say, I, you know, of the two, even though we sort of expected Room 104 to win, I do think Inside Number 9 is the better show. I would agree. Um, and I don't know how, like, I don't know if they're planning on doing a second season of this. Uh, yeah, it got the, renewed. It got renewed? Yeah. I, I don't know how long this show can go on. It's one thing to do different locations that have a sort of, I, like, that have an idea that connects them. I don't know how many episodes I would want to watch, just locked into this one hotel room.
0: I would have to assume that if they come back for a second season, they'll change. It'll be the a baseline. different room, one hundred and four. Would that make more sense? Like a like an apartment, one hundred and four, or something like that. Something maybe. Like it, it does seem like. Yeah, you can't keep it at a hotel. It does get very... a little
1: visually dry, uh, yes, being in I the exact agree. same did room. Did you
0: watch the very first episode, Ralphie? I did not. So uh, there is, I mean, even that, I there is a part, like, just the basic setup. I was like, it makes no sense that this is taking place in a hotel room. Mm-hmm. Like, because it's a father who hires this young woman to babysit his son. Right, and, why would you yes, have, have someone like, babysit like, in a hotel what room? What is happening? Yeah. yeah. Um,
1: I mean, the fact that the, the, like the Internet episode is set in like 1997 gives you the idea, well, maybe this hotel has been here for decades, and you could do an episode set in the '50s or set in the '80s. And so that, I guess, gives you a little bit of room to play with, but the room isn't going to change that much,
0: Right, and it's just not it's by de- definition, it is, is a, a, a drab, generic, drab generic hotel room yes.
1: hotel room. right. So that would be my thing, is that I'm definitely going to watch some more of the episodes from this season. I'm going to keep in touch with this show, and the episodes with the people that I like. Uh, the act, the actors I like, the the creators I like, I'm definitely gonna watch those. But I just, I don't like, I don't, I, I'm not sitting here going like Inside Number Nine. I get how that show could go on and on forever, um, and and I would want to keep watching it. This show, I don't know that I would want to see five seasons. It's of It's keeping people on a tight leash. Yes, but I do like a lot of the stuff I've seen from it so far, and I would encourage people to check uh, check the show out. Uh, We've given you a few to, to sample and see if you like it. That's Room 104. It is available on HBO Go and HBO Now. All right. Well, as you are listening to this, Allison and I are at the Toronto International Film Festival. We are not there at the moment while we're recording this. We're recording this a bit early, which means we have not seen it or any of the early September new releases, and we haven't even seen any Toronto movies yet to talk to you about them So we'll have to save all of that for our next episode. So let's get right to Behind the Eight Ball. This is where we wrap up our show with some new releases on streaming, some listener recommendations that you guys have sent to us at our email address, svu at filmspottingsvu.com. And we also give you one film chosen blindly by number from our ma lists on Netflix. (laughs) It's lovely that's how that's how netflix should end they don't have commercials i guess not like where they say their name but that's how like if they had commercials like that they should say it netflix sure <laughs> hey guys watch your movies on netflix
0: now say netflix and chill netflix and chill there you go who could
1: resist that <laughs> i can't think of anything more erotic <laughs> than that <laughs> All right. Allison, do you want to go first? Yeah, I'll go first. All right. Let's start with three new
0: releases. Okay. First up, new to Netflix is I Am Not Madame Bovary, a comedy from Feng Xiaogang, who is one of the most commercially successful directors in China, but his work rarely gets much of a release here, as is, I think, the case for a lot of international blockbusters. Uh, This film stars Fan Bingbing as a woman who divorces her husband in a scheme they both agreed on in order to get around a law that a married couple can only own one property but then she's double-crossed by that same husband who proceeds to remarry another woman claim he never made such a deal with his ex-wife and then accuse her of sleeping around Um, Hence the title where she is defending herself. A very literary reference to defend yourself against charges of promiscuity. Um, Her attempt to clear her name escalates and gets more bureaucratically surreal and complicated from there. Uh, That one is on Netflix, as is The B-Side, Elsa Dorfman's portrait photography. This is the most recent uh, documentary from Errol Morris. I would say a pretty minor one, if uh, kind of sweet and nice. It's made about his neighbor, Elsa Dorfman, who works in a format that is effectively dead at this point. I think there is only there's a finite uh, amount of film left that works in this format, which is large format instant Polaroid. Uh, which is like a a huge format that comes out like a Polaroid camera, um, which she uses to do these portraits of people and has for years and years. Uh, So the film is about her kind of going through her archives and talking about how she got into this and her technique. But it also becomes this ode to kind of ephemeral media and media changing. And so while it is about still photography, there is a part about it that speaks to conversations about film as well. And finally, new to Fandor is Kate Plays Christine, Robert Greene's doc about Christine Chubbuck was also the subject of the biopic, Christine, in which she was played by Rebecca Hall. In this version, she's played by Caitlin Scheel, who spends the film preparing for the role as much as she ever does play it. Uh, Her preparation's becoming an exercise in investigating the life of this woman, who was a Florida newscaster who famously committed suicide live on air in 1974. And ultimately, the the documentary becomes a, a kind of interrogation of why you would make a movie about a woman like this in the first place. That is on Fandor. All right, how about two listener recommendations? Okay, first up, we've got one from Matt in Madison, Wisconsin, who writes, I wanted to throw out a recommendation for a movie that was just added to Amazon Prime, Crime Wave, from 1985 directed by John Pais, not to be confused with Sam Raimi's Crime Wave, which was released in the same year. That's very confusing. Mm. Uh, Here's a summary from IMDb. A young screenwriter intent on making the greatest color crime movie ever can't seem to finish his script. He has a beginning and an end, but can't quite figure out the middle. The daughter of his landlord, excited to have a real movie person living nearby, tries to help by putting him in touch with a man who wants to collaborate on a script, the strange Dr. Jolly. There is a weird melding of various genre tropes and hammy, stilted characterization going on in Crime Wave that adds up to something unique and endearing, Matt writes. Bits and pieces of the protagonist's unfinished scripts are depicted throughout the film often to hilarious effect, and the main narrative has a surreal 1950s suburban technicolor haze of its own. Pais would go on to direct several segments uh, for the Kids in the Hall television series and was an early contemporary of fellow Winnipeg native Guy Madden, so that might give you some idea of the rather singular style and tone of crime wave. That is to say, it is deeply, delightfully Canadian. Certainly deserving of a wider audience, if not a vocal and devoted cult. I'm glad that Crime Wave might reach more viewers now through Amazon Prime. And Thanks, as always, for the thoughtful and fun discussions. Uh, thank you for that, Matt. I actually saw that pop up on Amazon Prime and had wondered if it was a Sam Raimi Crime Wave, and it mm-hmm. was not. And I had not heard of this one. and was curious, and now I know. And I will add it to whatever my Amazon Prime, my list equivalent is. And then we have one from Spencer from Delaware, who writes, I have a trilogy of films for my recommendation. The Desert Trilogy by Tunisian filmmaker Nasser Khmer. Uh, They are Wanderers of the Desert from 1984. The Doves Lost Necklace from 1991 and Bob Aziz from 2006. They are thematically similar in tone and approach. Not much is ever explained, but they utilize poetic and traditional storytelling while showing off the sheer beauty of the North Sahara. They are simple films that highlight Tunisian culture. The Sahara is barren, empty, and endless, but Nasir makes it appear like mythic, massive, and beautiful. You guys have a serious lack of African films. That's absolutely true, Spencer. (laughs) Um, Fandor and Amazon and Kugali have multiple African films available to stream, and the Desert Trilogy is on Fandor to stream. Seriously, Fandor is the best place to get into African films. Uh, They're easier to find than you'd think. You just have to look. Thank you for that, Spencer.
1: All right, and how about one film chosen blindly by number from your my list on Netflix?
0: You gave me number 13. That is Desierto, uh, directorial debut of Jonas Cuaron, son of Alfonso and co-writer of Gravity. Uh, thriller starring Gael Garcia Bernal as a Mexican man trying to cross the U.S.-Mexico border through the desert, only to cross paths with Jeffrey Dean Morgan as a psychotic border militia type who hunts migrants and shoots to kill. Uh, Very timely. Uh, If kind of a, like timely turned kind of B movie, I think, which is a very intriguing premise. Um, Didn't get around to seeing it in theaters. So there it is on my, my list. Desierto On Netflix. Are you ready, Mats? Yes. Okay, three new releases. First
1: up on Hulu, not Netflix, is uh, the immortal Arnold Schwarzenegger classic Conan the Barbarian from 1982. Schwarzenegger's uh, first breakthrough as an actor as Robert E. Howard's Pulp Hero, with James Earl Jones as snake cult leader Thulsa Doom, directed by John Milius, written by Milius and... Do you know, Allison? I do not know. Oliver Stone. Mm. It is one of the most bonkers macho movies ever made. And uh, you you can't watch it with the amazing Arnold Schwarzenegger, John Milius commentary on Hulu. Unfortunately, that's really the only problem here. But you can still watch the movie. Conan the Barbarian available on Hulu. Next up, also on Hulu, I have Mad Hot Ballroom, a 2005 documentary about dance being used as an educational tool in New York City public schools. The film premiered at Sundance in 2005. It went on to become the year's second highest grossing documentary after a little film called March of the Penguins. Maybe it's because my wife is a teacher, but I'm always a sucker for these sorts of documentaries about schools and education and finding interesting new ways to connect with and teach kids um, with unconventional means. I I always love these kinds of documentaries. So that's Mad Hot Ballroom. That is available on Hulu. And finally, I wanted to note that this month on Filmstruck, which we have mentioned before, that's the new streaming service from Turner Classic Movies and the Criterion Collection, is doing this cool series called First Films. So uh, a bunch of films that are available this month are the first films of major directors, the movies you can watch uh include Rob Reiner's This Is Spinal Tap, Christopher Nolan's Following, Guillermo del Toro's Kronos, David Lynch's Eraserhead, Ridley Scott's The Duelists, Jane Campion's Sweetie, and many more. And I just thought this was cool. I like this approach to streaming. You know, very curatorial Uh, almost programming things the way you would a cable channel or a small film festival, a repertory house or something. I I thought that was cool. I think we need more of that in the world of streaming where titles seem very arbitrary and just based on whatever rights I can get. Uh, So, yeah, so that's a whole sort of, I don't know what they're calling it, a series or a festival, but it's First Films, and that is available on Filmstruck.
0: Okay, give me two listener recommendations. Our first comes from Ben
1: in North Hollywood, California. He says, I want to share a new channel on my Roku that I've been obsessed with called the Megahertz Channel. The, uh spelled M-H-Z. The app features hundreds of original shows from non-English language countries, namely European ones like France, Belgium, and even a whole section on Scandinavian crime dramas. However, the main show I want to recommend is oh, – Allison gave me the one with the name I'm not going to be able to pronounce – Der – Tatoringer maybe. Uh, or as it's known English Crimes as it's known in English Crime Scene Cleaner. The show follows Shotty, a working-class cleaner who is called in to clean up locations after someone has died there either naturally or not. The show never shows the lead character before or after the cleanup. Instead, he always meets one or two people related to the deceased who he begins to talk with while cleaning. These conversations reign in tone, range in tone from political to humorous to touching, but always carrying a wonderful, dark, comedic edge. The show it reminds me of the most is High Maintenance. Uh, so if you love that show, uh, looking for things like it, then this is for you. So again, the show is Da Tortringer or Grr, I don't know. Uh, Crime crime Scene Cleaner on the Megahertz channel, MHZ channel that shows thank you Ben that show sounds great it actually kind of sounds almost like an anthology series does, in a way um, but yeah thank you for that recommendation I'm gonna have to check out that channel and that show our next recommendation comes from Olivier who writes I would like to recommend uh, Xavier Dolan's new movie it's only the end of the world now streaming on Netflix it's very simple and very emotional movie supported by amazing actors I was so moved by it that I had to pause about 30 minutes into the film and because it was a bit overwhelming. Thanks for helping me sort through the ever-growing pile of streaming content with your podcast. That's Xavier Dolan's new movie on Netflix, It's Only the End of the World. And that recommendation was from Olivier. Thank you for that
0: recommendation. All right. Give me one from your My List. On, on what streaming service is that? That would be on Netflix. On, w- on where? Netflix. Not playing along. Nope.
1: You gave me number five. Number five on my my list is "Wet Hot American Summer: Ten Years Later." Uh, a decade after their wild summer as junior counselors, the gang reunites for a weekend of bonding, hanky panky. This is from Netflix. Netflix. All these descriptions and hair raising adventures. I uh, have I haven't, I haven't watched. There's so much Netflix. Just Netflix alone. There's just so much content. I know. Much less our jobs of watching movies, watching other channels, watching. Re- I this show, and I watched. I love What on American Summer. One of my favorite comedies. I love the state. I watched that first Wet Hot American Summer Netflix series. I enjoyed that. I haven't watched a second of this, <laughs> not one second. Have you watched it at I haven't all? Either
0: no, and I haven't heard like the world's greatest things right. about this I, one. Well, that was
1: the, that's the thing. This show like came and went so quietly, and that's yeah. something that's
0: becoming but, incre- seems like increasingly true of Netflix. Is they're just pumping out stuff, right? Well, I think especially also if it's not. The premiere of a series, right. then they they do much less promotion. Like it's right. very clear that they don't, push or if it, it as doesn't hard.
1: seem to like catch on with I don't know, think piece writers or young people or something. It's just like they just have so much stuff that they're just I, their their publicity team must just be working around the clock and just not have time to. I don't know. I just they just I feel bad for them. There's must be so overworked. They just try to promote all of these shows. So yeah, that's Wet Hot American Summer. Ten years later, on Netflix. Netflix. All right. Speaking of Netflix, two of our listener choice options for our next episode are from
0: Netflix. That's true. <laughs> <laughs> one, I guess. I was so, so angry, I was so just
1: so sick of me.
0: I, uh, I was going to say, yes. yes. Uh, one of them, in fact, just had a high profile premiere is uh, having its high profile premiere at two festivals. I think it right. just played at Telluride so, and it uh, like, will so pr- have played at right. Toronto. Official premiere
1: is probably Toronto. Telluride is like this thing where you don't know what you're going to see until you show up. And on the first day, like surprise, here are our movies. Yes, and uh, you paid
0: a lot to be here. We hope you think it's worth
1: it. Right. Yeah. So this, so I mean, has, has, has the, has first, they killed my father, which is on Netflix. Netflix, Netflix is our first option. Has it actually played at tell
0: yet? Uh, yeah, it has.
1: Have you seen any reaction to it yet? I, they seem to be mostly good. Oh, yes. Mostly good, exclamation point. I mean, I haven't, point. I
0: haven't, like, seen, I haven't looked very deeply at them, okay. just because I figure I'll see it soon, so I haven't right.
1: been reading them, but... Put it on a poster. Mostly good, exclamation I point. I think
0: mostly good, says Alison Wilmore yes. of BuzzFeed. Yes, secondhand.
1: Uh, let me read you the plot description. Based on a true story, First I Killed My Father is about the indomitable spirit and devotion of a young Cambodian girl and her family as they struggle to stay together and survive during the reign of the Khmer Rouge regime in the wake of the Vietnam War. So not going to be a comedy. It's going to be very serious and intense.
0: But we can call it the Jolie, you know, when you're at a film festival and you're like, it's the blank.
1: Yes, it is the Jolie. It is the Jolie. I mean, she is increasingly a filmmaker first than an actor second or third or not at all seems much more invested in her directing career these days.
0: Yeah, and this could be our chance to talk about her really unexpected and sometimes odd, I would say, uh, filmmaking choices. They or we are... could or or we could talk about those and her acting career. Yeah, I and mean, we could just absolutely. do an all
1: The Jolie episode. I think there's a lot there to talk about. There would be more than we could possibly cover in just one podcast, but I think that would be a very interesting one. So that's option number one, Uh, fresh off its festival premieres and playing on Netflix. First, They Killed My Father.
0: Already on Netflix is Graduation. Uh, Graduation is the 2016 film from Christian Munju, played at Cannes. Romanian film and therefore you know what that means Matt. What does it mean? It's a light comedy about (laughs) how great it is to live in Romania. Uh, It is not it is a movie about uh, Romanian corruption and how it just basically slowly dissolves the life of this family. Um, It is about a doctor whose 18 year old daughter is planning to study abroad in, in the UK studies, uh, and she's about to graduate. And then when she's on her way to take the baccalaureate exam, that is this hugely important one uh, that will kind of dictate her future. And she seems very prepared for this. Something goes wrong. Ugh. And then the doctor is placed in a position of having to decide if he will like so many people there use his connections to finagle advantages for her that she wouldn't normally have. Uh, And then it becomes, you know, uh, of course things spiral from there and everything ends up really happily. Great. Yeah. Yeah. It does not. Oh. Uh, but, you, you know, this. I saw this at Cannes. I liked it. I would like to see it again because it's, uh, I think, one that I saw late in the festival when maybe my energy was not as good as it would be sure. otherwise. Uh, but it won. It shared the... Manju shared the Best Director Award there uh, with Olivier Assayas for Personal Shopper. So it got a lot of acclaim there, certainly, from the jury. So that is your second pick. Maybe we can do an uplifting all-Romanian. Wow. <laughs> an all-Romanian uh, episode you know we i don't
1: no we, matter what the option is here it's going to be a really lighthearted episode. episode yeah. well
0: i will say i don't think we've we, we haven't talked a lot for all that like romanian new wave is like one of the major you know international film movements on the festival circuit i don't think we've talked about romanian films ever here have we i mean we or might have recommended in, one or two yeah, here or passing. there it, it certainly hasn't yeah. been a theme yeah and i think that you know there are a lot of like really good films out there, there that are have kind of fallen in this and i don't think they are as much as i joke about this they're not all totally miserableist not uh, all. Often, they often deal with dark themes but they often also have like a really dark sense of humor
1: yes that is true yeah. they are also often incredibly long yes. it's gonna be long sit the podcast
0: sometimes you gotta sit matt sometimes you gotta sit So that's your second pick uh, option graduation on On, Netflix on Netflix on Netflix
1: on Netflix. I can't believe what I have to work with here. This is outrageous. Just wait until Netflix (laughs) (laughs) hears this. They're really going to want to sponsor this podcast. It's like there's ever been any danger. (laughs) Yeah. All right. Option number three. Another very interesting recent film here. It is available for rent, not on Netflix it is the film Manifesto, directed by Julian Roosevelt and starring Kate Blanchett. Kate Blanchett, Kate Blanchett, Kate Blanchett, Kate Blanchett. She plays, uh, I believe, is it 13 different parts? It's 12 or 13. It's at least a dozen. Uh, I'll read you the plot description. Plot description. Manifesto pays homage to the moving tradition and literary beauty of artistic manifestos, ultimately questioning the role of the artist in society today. Performing these new manifestos as a contemporary call to action... While inhabiting, here we go, 13 different personas, Academy Award winner Kate Blanchett imbues new dramatic life into both famous and lesser-known words in unexpected contexts. So this, I think, actually began as like a museum piece. It was projected...
0: An installation. In an
1: installation, like 13 different screens, Kate Blanchett doing all these uh, different monologues, basically, these manifestos. And so this is a film version. It premiered at Sundance earlier this year. This takes that and sort of turns it into a a digestible in a single sitting film. I didn't actually see it at Sundance. I missed it. But my colleague, uh, Oliver, saw it and really liked it. Have you seen it?
0: I haven't seen it.
1: Okay. So this is one that we've had sort of recommended to us that we just missed, it fell through the cracks. But this would give us a, a chance to, uh, to to cover it. Well, we, we could do Kate Blanchett.
0: We could. We could do actors playing different roles in the same movie.
1: Right. We could. That's a that's a great possible theme. We could also do like. You know, I, I don't think Kate Blanchett's character is famous artist necessarily, but we could do sort of like art or like art on screen, famous artists or different art movements. Yeah. Or
0: when artists direct.
1: When artists direct. That's another one. So there's a lot. There's, there's a lot of. This might have. Yeah, it might even have the most of all three in terms of theme possibilities. So we got lots to choose from there. That is option number three. Uh, manifesto. It is available for rent.
0: Okay, so which of these movies should we review on the next episode of Film Spotting Streaming Video Units? You tell us. You can send your pick to SVU at filmspottingsvu.com or you can enter in the poll at the bottom of the page at filmspottingsvu.com. Your vote must be received by Monday, September 18th at noon. And after that, we'll announce the winner on Twitter at our Twitter account, FilmSpottingSVU, and on our Facebook, which is Facebook.com slash FilmSpottingSVU. And then you'll have all that week to watch the film and then join us for our conversation on the next episode, which will come out around Tuesday, September 26th.
1: FilmSpottingSVU.com is also where you can find our show archive, as well as a list of direct links to all the movies we discuss on the show, and in this case, television shows. The FilmSpottingSVU remix theme song is by Vince Vandal. You can listen to more of Vince's work at VinceVandal.BandCamp.com. We will be back in two weeks with more movie and probably some TV recommendations as well and the movie review you pick, but in the meantime follow us on twitter at Allison wilmore and at matt singer and you can follow the show at film spotting svu that's where we announce the winner of each show's listener's choice and where we share more streaming suggestions both from you the svu listeners and from ourselves for film spotting svu i'm matt singer and
0: i'm allison wilmore thanks for listening